Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. I should have been briefed immediately by my staff. I have dealt with that matter. It is time for Marco Mendicino to resign. The public safety minister faces calls to resign over the handling of Paul Bernardo's prison transfer. And opposition leaders look for consensus on a foreign interference inquiry. We hear from the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. The Volkswagen investment is fully accounted for in the fiscal framework. Parliament's fiscal watchdog says the Volkswagen deal will cost billions more than what the government says. More details on why that is with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux. I will be a candidate for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. The mayor of Mississauga is now in the running for Ontario Liberal leader. A look at what Bonnie Crombie's campaign means for that race with Toronto Star journalist Robert Benzie. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. The public safety minister says he'll now require that officials formally and directly tell him about the transfer of high-profile or dangerous offenders. Marco Mendicino says he didn't learn ahead of time about Paul Bernardo's move to a medium security prison. But conservatives want Mendicino to resign or be fired for what his office knew in advance about one of Canada's most notorious criminals. An entire generation of Canadian women have to relive the traumatization of hearing Paul Bernardo's name. They all remember his horrific and monstrous crimes. They learned that this government decided to free this monster from maximum security prison and allow him to go to medium security where he'd be able to interact with other people, have visitors, and enjoy other liberties. Now, this minister claimed this was all a big surprise to him. However, we learned today that his office knew in early March and was informed again in May. In other words, he did know and what he said was false. Will he resign? The Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, nothing could be further from the truth. As I said earlier, I was informed on May 30th, the day after Paul Bernardo was physically transferred to a medium security institution. And at that time, I took immediate action expressing the concerns of the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French to the Commissioner. There is an internal review process. I have also made it clear to my staff that this should have been briefed immediately. Corrective steps have been taken. I have dealt with it, and we will now always defend the rights of victims. Also on Parliament Hill, talks continue on foreign interference. Opposition leaders are meeting with each other on a possible inquiry, and the government's key minister on that file says he expects to talk with the other parties over the next few days. I've said publicly, in a perfect scenario, we would have, uh, by the end of next week, uh, some further details on the next steps. But again, if we, f- if we find the right person or persons, and if there's a consensus around these names, these people will also want to participate, presumably, in looking at timelines, looking at terms of reference. So uh, they may want to consult others. I mean, this is a process that has to be done well, but expeditiously. And with me now is the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, good to see you. Good to see you as well. 
So let's start where things stand on a possible inquiry into foreign interference. Pierre Polyev has met with Yves-Francois Blanchet. He says he has reached out to your office. Have you started talks yet with the Conservatives? We've not. But let's, uh, let's take a quick moment to step back. Uh, we've called for a public inquiry since the beginning. We were the party that presented two motions in Parliament to vote for a public inquiry. We forced those votes forward. The will of the House was to have a public inquiry. And most recently in our vote, not only did we say we need a public inquiry, but we also wanted Mr. Johnson to step down. And now what do we have? Mr. Johnson has stepped down, and the government's now making uh, some signs that they're, they're considering a public inquiry. We fought hard, and we were able to force the government to do this. Okay, so. Just to go back to though, these discussions this week, are you planning to speak with the Conservatives or the Bloc? What are uh, the factors in a potential public inquiry that you think the opposition parties uh, need to be cooperating on? So I'm absolutely uh, prepared to speak with all the opposition leaders and I have responded to Mr. Polyev and so we'll have that conversation. But I want to be clear about the path forward. The path forward, what I've suggested, is a similar model to what, what, what happens in, in the provincial parliament in Ontario, where we've got each member of, each a, a recognized party has an elected official present in a committee that's responsible for selection in Ontario for any officer of the legislature, but in this case would be specifically for the public inquiry, that uh, it would be chaired by, uh, by the speaker in the case of Ontario, it could be chaired uh, a non-voting member that chairs it, and then uh, we would review their prospective candidates for the position, in this case the public inquiry. So you've got a representative from each of the parties there reviewing the candidates. The candidates need to be vetted. We need to ensure a couple of criteria that there is no uh, association with, for example, the Trudeau Foundation, given the allegations around foreign interference there, uh, that it's a judge or someone that's a retired judge and someone that is not donated to a political party in a, in a recent period of time, just to ensure that there's no appearance of bias. Those are some of the basic criteria. There'd be a vetting process, and then we select the, the opposition, or we select the, uh, the person that's gonna run the public inquiry together. This process is one where we're all in the same room and we're making decisions together. Uh, and finally, to set the, uh, what the parameters of the public inquiry. That's also something we should be doing together. It shouldn't be the case that each uh, opposition leader sends a separate set of demands and then the government receives that and says, oh, there's no consensus. That's not the way to do this. What we want is everyone sitting together, working together, and then delivering a process that works. Okay, so you've outlined your criteria again, how you want this process to work. Now, we have heard the Bloc Québécois put forward some specific names like Louise Arbour and Erwin Kotler. Uh, do you have any specific names right now? Well, good, good point. So um, the, the Bloc put forward a name, Louise Arbour. Uh, they were strongly critical of Mr. Johnson for his connections to the Trudeau Foundation. On one Google search of, uh, of Justice uh, Arbour's name and the Trudeau Foundation founds, finds, one Google search that she's actually also has some connections to the foundation. So the name that the block provided has the exact same critique that they've had against Mr. Johnson, which is illustrative of why we don't want to just throw out names. We want a process in place. And the process has to satisfy certain criteria so we don't end up in the kind of embarrassing situation the block is in. Their major critique of Mr. Johnson 
is now being replicated in the name that they've suggested themselves. And that's something that's not helpful in this process. So what we want to do is have a process of cri a criteria and then a vetting process of people that can satisfy that criteria. And then as, a, as a all elected, all, rep all official parties, uh, as consensus on selecting the, the candidate uh, to avoid that kind of embarrassing mistake that the bloc has just made. Okay, uh, let me ask you one last question on this. I'll turn from potential names to the actual timeline for this because you and the other opposition parties have been talking about a need to hold this in a certain time frame to ensure that an inquiry can be complete before a potential federal election campaign. Why are you confident that this can be complete before that happens, given the concerns we're hearing about security, about documents, and, and about how long public inquiries can last? It depends on the scope of the public inquiry. And so we've seen in the example of the Emergencies Act inquiry, the Rouleau Commission, that it was done within a, in a timely manner. That's something that we're, we would like to see happen in this case, keeping in mind the urgency around a potential election happening uh, in the future. We want to make sure that we're hearing that we undercover the problems and then also present some real solutions that are worked on or implemented before an election. That's really important so that we can restore confidence before an election happens. So given that there would be a, a deadline naturally because of a potential election, the, the latest that could be is 2025, but it could happen earlier. We're in a minority government, so it's really uncertain in, the, in these cases. Uh, so we won't, we'd want to have that urgency injected into the public inquiry. Okay, I want to turn now to uh, another story today. Conservatives want Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino to resign over his office's prior knowledge of Paul Bernardo's transfer to a medium security prison and uh, how that conflicts with the minister's own words uh, in recent weeks. Do you think the minister needs to resign over this? Well, I'll be asking a question today about that. I, I think it is really disrespectful to families, to, to the victims' families who are having to be re-traumatized by all of this coming out in the news. The pain, the grief, the just uh, incredible uh, suffering that this, these families have, have gone through uh, because of what happened to their, to their loved ones. It's just, it's, it's horrific, it's unimaginable, uh, the pain that they're experiencing and they have to be re-traumatized in this way. And for the minister, some, some now leaks are suggesting that the minister's office would have known prior to the transfer and then the minister made it seem like he had no clue these are very uh, troubling questions that arise and i'll be asking questions about that today okay i want to turn now to the legislative front as we're nearing uh, the end of the spring sitting your party has a new bill on pharmacare you said you want to keep pressuring the liberals to uphold uh, its end of your confidence agreement which includes pharmacare passed by the end of this year now we've heard the health minister say the government is working on its bill but can't promise that it would pass in that time frame would that be a deal breaker for your agreement well we've heard this before when it came to uh, dental care for children under 12 the government said they couldn't meet the deadline and we fought hard and we forced them to deliver they said they couldn't deliver on the dental care that we we wanted to see happen for seniors and kids under 18 and people living with disabilities we fought hard and forced them to include that in the budget so this is just another example of where we're going to have to continue to fight uh, we're not surprised we said this and i've said this many times that even though we've got a document that lays out all the things that we have forced this government to agree to do to help people out that we still have to fight and force them to do it. And we're fighters, we're gonna do that. I'm gonna fight to make sure the government upholds its side of the bargain. And that means uh, putting pressure on them to say that we've got it in writing here, it's gotta be done by the end of this year. We expect it to be done by the end of this year. 
Okay, one final question then on, on the legislative front. You've certainly touted accomplishments linked to that confidence agreement, but as you know, the Liberals are also taking credit for things like dental care. So as you look to the next sitting, possibly even a new session with a new throne speech later this year, taking stock uh, over the past year plus of that agreement, do you think it's been a success for the NDP itself as a party in terms of your electoral prospects? Well, for, for New Democrats, our success is determined by are we helping out people? And on that metric, yes, it's been a huge success. We forced this government to double the GST rebate that's uh, last year. We made that happen again this year. It's in the budget. Millions of people received a little break to give them some help with uh, the cost of bills, the cost of groceries. We were able to force this government to bring in dental care, which is going to help out millions of seniors and children under 18. We forced this government to bring in for Indigenous, by Indigenous housing and real commitments to funding and building those projects. Nothing that we were able to force this government to do. So we've, we've delivered concrete things as the fourth party in this parliament, the only real opposition party that is setting the legislative agenda and forcing government to work for people. You Democrats are really proud of that. And we're proud that we've been able to give people the break that they needed. But there's a lot more that's needed to be done and we're not gonna let off the, the pressure. We're not gonna let off the gas. We're gonna keep on fighting for more things for people. Okay, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, I want to thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Now to the federal deal with Volkswagen for an EV battery plant in Ontario. Canada's parliamentary budget officer says the government could pay up to $16 billion over the next decade. That's more than $2 billion higher than the government's own estimate. The PBO says more money is needed for tax adjustments that match U.S. subsidies. Here's a reaction from the finance minister. The difference in the number... So, a couple of important things. It's really important that Canadians understand that the Volkswagen investment is fully accounted for in the fiscal framework. We knew about it when the budget was tabled, and it is in the underlying numbers. The numbers that the PBO is working off of are numbers in the fiscal, embedded in the fiscal framework, which were provided to the PBO by the Department of Finance. So we're working, we're working off of the same numbers, and the point of difference is on the tax treatment of the investment. The IRA incentives are not taxable. Um, Canada faced, when the IRA came into force, a situation where the US, frankly, had just changed the game. And we knew that Canada had to be at the table. We were just not, as a government, going to tolerate a situation in which investment was sucked out of Canada, sucked to south of the border. And I don't think Canadian workers should tolerate that situation. And here now to talk about today's report is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Mr. Giroux, good to have you here on Primetime Politics again. A pleasure. Thank you. So you're projecting that the federal government will have to commit more to Volkswagen than what's been announced because of this $2.8 billion that the government hasn't accounted for in its public costing. Can you walk me through what exactly you're talking about with that $2.8 billion? Where is that coming from? Sure. So the government's stated aim when it offered these uh, subsidies to Volkswagen was to match what the company would get under the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act had it decided instead to establish in the U.S. 
Under the IRA, the tax assistance would be provided through tax credits, so not taxable. Whereas in Canada, subsidies of that nature are taxable under the Income Tax Act. So what we have accounted for is that if the government, as its stated aim has indicated, wants to match the U.S. IRA, it has to um, increase its offer by $2.8 billion. So, uh, and that's based on public statements as well as documents that were provided to us by the government, various departments. So it's quite clear that the government will have to either match the U.S. IRA by increasing um, the amount by $2.8 billion or amend the Income Tax Act should it decide to do it in a different way. Okay, so we did hear from the finance minister, and she says uh, you and the government, you're working off uh, similar numbers that it's accounted for in the fiscal framework. But she says this $2.8 billion, she says it's a hypothetical conclusion about future tax treatment. So uh, is there any way that your calculation could end up at a different number, hypothetically? Uh, hypothetically, it's always possible. The government, as I said, could always choose to amend the Income Tax Act to make the uh, assistance to Volkswagen non-taxable. It's always a possibility, but we're not uh, aware of any such um, amendment being in the making or being uh, before Parliament. So do you know if there's any reason why the government would not have accounted for this, at least in its public presentation of what it was investing? Um, no, I don't know because that's quite clear in all the documents we've seen and in public statements that were made that this is the logical conclusion. Okay, so just taking a wider look at uh, then at this uh, Volkswagen investment, what can you say at this point about what the economic impact of this is going to be for the Canadian economy? So we looked at the impact of the construction of the plant itself and the construction of the plant will not lead to significant economic benefits. Uh, it will increase GDP by 0.01% and will create about 1,400 jobs by 2027, which is not an immense economic impact. The biggest impact will come from the operation of the plant, so the production of battery cells themselves. And we have not yet estimated the economic and fiscal impacts of that. Uh, we ran out of time. We wanted to release this report before the end of the parliamentary session. And there are also quite a, a number of provisions in the contract that we have seen that are confidential. And we weren't sure if using these numbers would breach confidentiality provisions. So we'll be looking at that. The impact of the production phase in a couple of, of months once we have more time okay, to, to do ask, that. Are you yes. expecting to get whatever clearance you need to share those details with us? I'm confident we'll be able to provide uh, an updated report that will look at the economic impacts of the production itself, the production of batteries. Okay, um, there's a lot of talk right now obviously about Stellantis, because mm -hmm. that negotiation uh, is ongoing uh, after this Volkswagen announcement uh, took place. Um, what can you tell us about what your work on Volkswagen tells Canadians about these new negotiations with Stellantis and what the cost could end up reaching? Well, what we saw with the assistance provided to Volkswagen is that it is very, very generous subsidies regarding uh, production of batteries, and especially when comparing to the number of jobs that will allegedly be created. And it's not surprising that another company that is in the same business line wants 
comparable treatment. So uh, it's, it suggests that this is very generous and Stellantis wants similar treatment. So I'm wondering at what point will we see the conclusion of this race to subsidize battery production in the country? So it's a, it's a big question. Okay, well, we'll keep watching for potential answers to those questions. Uh, Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, thank you so much. My pleasure. The mayor of Mississauga is officially in the Ontario Liberal leadership race. Bonnie Crombie joins another former MP, Ted Shu, along with current MPs Nate Erskine-Smith and Yasser Nakfi. The new leader for the province's third party will be announced in December. Our province is facing some significant challenging issues. Our health care is in crisis. Our education system is being shortchanged. Our environment is fragile. And life in Ontario is becoming increasingly unaffordable. So, what is Doug Ford and the Conservatives' answer? Privatized health care, my friends. More online learning. Helping their buddies get richer. That is not the Ontario you want, and it is not the Ontario that I want. So let's talk about that Ontario Liberal leadership race with Rob Benzie, the Toronto Star's Bureau Chief at Queen's Park. Rob, good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. So, Rob, Bonnie Crombie joins the race now to lead the Ontario Liberals. The voting is still months away, but is she now the clear frontrunner? I mean, we had an abacus poll for the Toronto Star this week, Andrew, that showed that she is the front runner in terms of name recognition, in terms of her favorability ratings, which are much higher than her main competitors, uh, Yasser Nakfi, uh, the MP for Ottawa Centre, and Nate Erskine-Smith, the MP for Beaches East York. So two federal members are, are jumping to provincial politics. Now, of course, Yasser Nakfi is a very well-known guy at Queen's Park. He was the Attorney General, former uh, President of the Ontario Liberal Party. So he's a formidable candidate as well. And Erskine Smith's a good organizer. So with these three main candidates, and Ted Shu is the fourth candidate, he's the MPP for Kingston uh, and the Islands, uh, but the three main candidates are really um, uh, injecting a lot of interest in this race. Uh, Bonnie Crombie, of course, the mayor of Mississauga, one of the biggest cities in the country. She's arguably one of the most prominent municipal politicians in Canada. Uh, she's all over uh, our local airwaves here in Toronto and, um, and, and a familiar face. And she was a former MP as well, so she's a familiar face in Ottawa. And I think uh, she's really um, uh, added a lot of uh, zip and, 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 and dazzle to this, uh, to this contest. The, and, and that's it's saying something, uh, Andrew, because remember, the Liberal Party uh, is nowhere, literally, in, uh, in Ontario right now. They, are, uh, they, they only have seven MPPs in the 124-member legislature. Uh, you need 12 for official standing, so they don't have official status as a party in the House, which is crazy when you think that this is a party that governed Ontario under Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne from 2003 to 2018. And... Doug Ford's Conservatives wiped that away in 2018 and then were re-elected uh, uh, last June, uh, almost a, a year and two weeks ago. Uh, and they have uh, made it very, very difficult for the Libs. Yet, having said that, even though the Libs are, are not even an official party and the NDP is the official opposition uh, under Marit Stiles, 
um, there's a lot of interest in this party because they've attracted some big name candidates for their leadership. So you talked about Bonnie Crombie's uh, prominence and, and her recognition, um, and you talked about the candidates. She is, as you said, staying on as mayor of Mississauga. Uh, what's her biggest challenge going to be now over the next few months as she campaigns, as she tries to get support inside the party? Well, I mean, she's going to be uh, the main uh, focus of conservative attacks. Uh, Doug Ford, for whatever reason, uh, she lives rent-free inside his head, Andrew. Uh, she, I've never seen the, uh, 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 the, the premier so concerned about an opposition politician as he is about her. And I think it's because he respects her ability uh, as, a, as a retail politician. He's very effective at, at that stuff. So is she. She's also um, a 905 politician, and, and the Conservatives hold nearly every single seat uh, in the 905, I think everything but one uh, in the, the wide range of seats around uh, the greater Toronto area. So that's a huge uh, risk for their members. If, if she comes in and starts peeling away PC seats uh, in the 2026 election, uh, those things kind of fall like dominoes. So they're concerned about this. Ford himself is concerned about this. He has a great affinity for um, municipal politicians. He comes from municipal politics. So he knows, uh, and it's actually, ironically, has worked pretty closely with Bonnie Crombie on a, on a few initiatives, right. including uh, the, the end of Peel Region as a as an entity. And they're both, both Ford and Crombie are kind of um, uh, their political matriarch, their 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 political talisman was uh, the late former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion. Uh, both of them were very close to her, so this is almost like Hazel's children fighting it out. If it's Doug Ford versus Bonnie Crombie in the 2026 election, and just building on that, you know, another interesting factor is we've already heard a bit from Bonnie Crombie say how she would position the Liberal Party in in the next election in terms of the political spectrum uh, on the centre, on the centre-right, uh, presumably uh, to try and get some of those Conservative voters back into the Liberal fold. How do you think uh, that kind of view that you're going to hear from Bonnie Crombie is going to play off against the other candidates? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be, I mean, she walked back. That was her first day when she was first talking about being a candidate. She did, I think, 23 or 24 interviews that first day. And, and in a couple of them, she's, she talked about the need for a center-right alternative. And some of her foes uh, or her rifles um, uh, pounced on that. And I understand why. I mean, uh, a liberal like Nate Erskine-Smith, who's probably more left of center, he was concerned about that kind of rhetoric. He's, he, as he said, look, we already have a, a, a center-right party in the progressive conservatives. Um, so are we are, do we really need to be in that same space? And and he has a point. Um, having said that, I, I talked to Crombie's campaign team about that. And they say Ontarians don't think in left or right terms. Most people are in the center. I would argue that Doug Ford is a centrist. Frankly, he's a, the biggest spending premier in the history of Ontario, spending almost 30 percent more uh, money this year than Kathleen Wynne's Liberals did in their last year in 2018, and that was a pre-election year when they were they were running up spending quite heavily. So uh, the idea that Doug Ford is somehow um, um, a spendthrift is not exactly borne out by the actual numbers. Um, that's that being said, uh, I think what Crombie Crombie's pitch to voters is that she is a reasonable viable alternative to Ford because there are a lot of people who don't who, who may not mind the progressive conservatives but they don't feel comfortable with Ford himself um and and her favorability rating is much higher than his uh so far now no Tory attack ad has been launched against her yet and you know a lot of things can happen if she's the liberal leader 
uh, I expect them to trot out a whole bunch of stuff about the things that she, her record in Mississauga. Even some of her rivals are saying, look, Mississauga didn't do enough on housing starts. Um, and it didn't, they weren't, they didn't build enough housing uh, during her tenure as mayor. Nate Erskine Smith was talking about that this week. Um, so I mean, but she's the front runner uh, and she has the kind of, um, uh, the, the, the sheen of, uh, uh, and, and has attracted really talented people around her, her campaign and team and so on. So she has the sheen of a winner, but it's a one member, one vote. Uh, contest, Andrew. We, the Liberals have never done this before, and lots of strange things can happen. In 2015, in the Ontario PC uh, leadership race, Patrick Brown, who was a little-known backbencher from Ottawa, federal member, he came in and beat Christine Elliott, who was very, very popular in PC circles. He beat her by two to one in a one-member, one-vote election, and she had all the caucus support. She had a lot of money behind her. She had a lot of big name operatives on her side, and Elliot didn't win. So uh, anything can happen in a in a in a one member one vote contest. It's not a delegated convention like they used to pick their leaders, in which the the party insiders kind of have more of a say, and you you build a consensus toward the leader. And that's how Dalton McGuinty, for example, was able to win in 1996. It's how Kathleen Wynne was able to win in 2013 by being a lot of people's second choices and so on. I think. In this contest, it's going to be interesting to see how, I mean, how people, uh, uh, Nader Smith and Yasser Nakvi are really capable organizers. As I said, Nakvi was the president of this party. He knows the Ontario Liberal Party probably better than anyone alive. And uh, that that can translate into, you know, you know, the 10 people that you're the 100 people you need in, in, a, in an unheld riding. And they have lots of unheld ridings where the Liberal Riding Association is dormant. Someone like Yasser Nakfi can go in there and revive that and score a hundred points for that uh, toward the uh, toward the leadership. And it's so who knows? It's 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 going to be very very hard to tell. Yes, it's going to be very interesting over the next few months ahead of that vote later this year. We have to leave it there for now, though. Rob Benzie, always good to hear from you. Thank you, Andrew. And that's primetime politics for Wednesday. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for everyone at CPAC, thanks for watching.